Welcome to Financial Framework's second podcast. Today we will add more elements to the fundamentals of the cost versus worth framework by discussing the arithmetic for estimating future value, compounding and discounting, as that is essential to looking at all decisions through time value of money lenses. Secondly, we'll look at biases that one needs to guard against. Third, I will introduce a more complex cost versus worth framework. And finally, we'll look at one inflation problem that is on most people's minds. First, we'll talk about some basic time value of money mechanics and why it's important for you to think in terms that money is not static and cost and worth need to be looked at through compounding and discounting lenses as you make choices. Time value of money. Money follows Heraclitus's maxim. The only constant is changed. So if that is the case, shouldn't you understand the methods for calculating those changes, money increasing or decreasing, and how they are applied so that you can hold on to more of your money? As in the first podcast, the emphasis will be on you doing the work with me so that you own the tools and are comfortable applying them. Compounding is a simple formula that gradually increases the product or result of the formula by a fractional amount. The formula has four variables, the principal or base amount, a placeholder, the interest rate and time, or a number of periods factor. The simplest example to demonstrate how compounding works is to start with a principal of $100, an interest rate of 10%, and two time periods. It's usually years when people are trying to figure out annual returns for investments or costs. At the end of two years, the compounding process produces a value of $121, the original $100 plus $21. A simple interest calculation would produce $20 in interest on top of the $100. $1 doesn't seem like much, but over time, and you take it to 2% or 3% or 4%, that can make a significant difference. I'll post the formulas, both a simple and a complex way of looking at them, on my website. But basically, the formula is the principal is equal to 1 plus 1 times the interest rate times the time factor. Discounting is the reverse. It's a gradual decreasing of the principal amount. So instead of the uh, numerator being the rate factor, it's now the denominator. P is equal to 1 plus 1 divided by 1 times the interest rate times the time. In practical terms, it is important to remember that you may want to apply both formulas at the same time because both can happen at the same time. This is why we spend a lot of time in the classes I taught talking about which formulas to apply, when you apply them, and why. Think about what you want when you are investing to grow faster than inflation, because inflation is discounting and decreasing at the same time you want yours to grow, which is compounding. So the math is to calculate both when evaluating what something will be worth in the future so that you come out ahead. Now on to the human factor, biases. Again, these are all things that you need to have in your framework. When making financial decisions, a person needs to do sound research, perform factual analysis, apply one's intuitive skills, and then make the decision, all the while being as clear as possible. We all have biases. In a non-pejorative use of the word, we like some things more than others. That's a bias. And we dislike some other things more than others. It's a bias. With regard to financial decisions, my experience and research has suggested that four biases that are most detrimental to financial decision making are confirmation bias, optimism bias, 
loss aversion, and normalcy bias. We'll never eliminate them, so the strategy is to be aware and diminish them or make them explicit. We will look at them here and consider how to counteract them when evaluating a financial matter. Confirmation bias can be described as reaching a conclusion and then looking for data to support the conclusion, or simply looking at data sources that will support an opinion or set of opinions we already have. For example, there are certain companies that I like because of their management style. They're transparent, they're decisive, they're innovative. I have to ask myself, will my likes override my research about whether these companies' stocks are overpriced in the current market? So I take my likes into account when analyzing and work to make them explicit and decrease their weight. The optimism bias is basically a belief that a person is less likely to experience negative events and more likely to experience positive events, as in Garris and Keeler's Lake Wobegon introduction where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. A ton of studies have been done showing how common this is. The antidote is to seek out information regarding the perspective decision that is critical of one's viewpoint. Loss aversion bias. Most people are highly loss averse. Studies have shown that losses are felt between two and two and a half times more strongly than gains. This is a quote from Barry Ritzholtz, Washington Post business section. Loss aversion fact favors inaction and often fosters bold hopes and predictions followed by timid actions. Counteracting loss aversion bias is particularly difficult and requires multiple reviews of one's analysis to determine whether data has been interpreted too cautiously or analysis is not consistent with assumptions about the future. Normalcy bias. Charles Duhigg has written a fascinating book entitled The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. In it, he outlines a variety of mental shortcuts that we take, usually to get through the day, they're necessary, and these shortcuts include normalcy biases. I highly recommend the book. Normalcy bias is often seen in two forms, failing to react to an impending or occurring disaster or crisis, or secondly, not preparing for a possible, not necessarily probable, but a possible negative event. Normalcy bias is one consideration in planning for short-term potential weather events. Believing that tomorrow will be the same as today, even though high winds and heavy rains are forecast and some preparations need to be made, things need to be put away or stored or battened down or uh, prepared for flooding, the person doesn't do it. There are many ways to counteract normalcy bias, and my method is to ask two questions. One, have I looked at all the potential downsides of this investment or financial decision? What if things go really wrong and what are those things? Second question, let's assume that something system-wide will go wrong. Will my investment or my financial choice weather that storm and retain its value for me two years, five years, or longer down the road? Let me summarize some counteractive methods so that our cost versus worth analysis is accurate and clear. I suggest three. The first set of criteria for each of the biases would look like, is data missing? Have I underestimated for loss aversion? Have I asked all the questions that I should have asked? And have I used all the data sources that I normally use in making a decision? Secondly, when researching and analyzing, I review the criteria for A, being loaded with favorable assumptions and data, 
This addresses confirmation and optimism bias. B, am I lacking negativity? Am I lacking critical what-ifs? Have I avoided disquieting evidence? That takes on the normalcy bias. And C, I develop a quantitative loss aversion metric. The loss aversion metric might be, my analysis says the upside on this is 10. What can I stand to lose? Okay, that covers biases. Now, I promised in the first podcast a more sophisticated cost versus worth matrix. We talked about the importance of integrating analytical tools with your values rather than excluding subjectivity, as scientists like to say. Your decisions need to be consistent with your values in order to be the best possible decisions. This is not a rocket science process, but it does demand clarity and discipline. In order to perform analysis, I use a seven-part matrix based on the cost versus worth formula. Then I figure out how I want to do the math. The matrix consists of the following items. Number one, the objective of the analysis. What problem am I solving? Number two, the price. What is the cost? Number three, what is the worth of the entity in question? What am I going to be getting and how do I value it? Number four, I do a separate risk assessment. What could happen to cause me harm? Number five, what are my values in financial terms? How much is this worth to me? There are a lot of overlapping, not necessarily consistent questions, but they'll all be about values to tease out what something really means. Number six, what is the context of the analysis? Timing, external factors, stakeholders. Number seven, I assume that money and capital are not static and I engage in the compounding and discounting calculations we talked about earlier. Each of these elements should be looked at like poles holding up a tent. Without any one of them, the tent doesn't stand up and the analysis is not complete. So let's look at them in more detail. Objective. First, be clear about what your goal is. Is it long-term gains, cash flow improvement, cash outflow reduction, the safety of your money, or something else? You would be astonished at how many projects start out in one direction and get blown off course by something that happens between the beginning and the end and the original objectives are not achieved. Second third elements are pretty straightforward. Using the example of replacing an automobile, what are you willing to pay for the vehicle? What's your budget? That's the cost. And again, what is the value to you? Safety, four-wheel drive, uses less gas, electric. What is of identifiable value? that you are getting for your expenditure. Fourth, always consider risk as a separate element that needs to be defined as clearly and from as many angles as possible, but mostly in terms of what if things change? Will this still be the best thing to do? Number five is often the hardest to apply because most people focus on the numbers, the data, the pluses and the minuses, the debits and the credits, but those are really the preparation for the question, is this what I really want? An excellent example of this is in the book, The Millionaire Next Door. It's a great book. In the middle of the book, there's a story of a wealthy, successful person whose friends wanted to purchase a Rolls Royce for him as a gift. When he found out about it, he asked them not to, and he gave these reasons. He normally traveled with his dog. He really liked eating at local diners where everybody knew him and knew who he was. He often parked his car in industrial areas where a Rolls Royce would stick out like a sore thumb. And equally importantly, He really liked fishing, and often when he caught them uh, and brought them home, they were in the backseat of the car. A Rolls-Royce would not be in place with those sets of behaviors, 
and he had no intention of changing the way he did things. He would be uncomfortable treating a Rolls Royce, especially a gift from his friends, in that manner, and requested that they do something else to show their affection. The gentleman was very clear about his values. Integrating numbers with your values requires thought and discipline, but it's worth it. Two other excellent sources that provide a lot of food for thought and discuss this process are Peter Lynch's first book, One Up on Wall Street. It was published in the early 90s. Your library will have it. It's a great book. And Daniel Towns' book, Invested, I-N-V-E-S-T-E-D. It's about the investment process. Next, the context for analysis or a decision will influence priorities. A person investing at age 25 is in a different set of circumstances than a person investing at 55. The context, less time for compounding to work, will cause the 55-year-old to be more cautious in most likelihood than the 25-year-old. Where the country is in the business cycle is a contextual consideration. When teaching emergency management students strategic planning and discussing stakeholders, I advise them to consider context as a stakeholder, worth defining and assessing. Finally, number seven is something that, as we've said, is taught in finance classes and is second nature to those working in the financial services industry, but is often not part of the conceptual toolkit of non-finance people. The value of money and most things associated with it is constantly changing. You and I don't see this in black and white most days. Our mortgage payment doesn't change. Our car payment doesn't change. But recently we have noticed prices go up, incredibly so in the case of gasoline. But we associate that with the price of the goods or what it costs to build a car or to put together a candy bar. We don't think about money as in and of itself or the cost of money as being worth more or less on a daily basis. However, in order to estimate what something will be worth two years from now, the Ford or Tesla or Rivian stock, or the value of the home we are buying with a mortgage, we need to think about inflation. Should I buy it now? Should I buy it later? Will it be more expensive later? Will I have less purchasing power later on? What causes inflation and what will that do to values? And if we need to calculate inflation because we want our investments to beat the inflation rate, how do we calculate those things? Inflation. Our last topic for today, but it will lead into podcast three. Inflation is an increase in costs and a loss of purchasing power in the future. Since we already experience it right now, let's build it into our framework thinking. Is there an overall approach to inflation? Do we have to take it on a case-by-case or commodity-by-commodity basis? What do financial experts advise individuals and families to do? Where they only have finite incomes, how do they handle inflation? Is there one overarching strategy, or do you do multiple separate strategies that depend on the item and the situation? Like Aristotle, let's start with a specific problem, then see if generalizations can apply. Let's start with the cost of gasoline and how inflation with this one thing affects us. I will lay out some criteria for evaluating the impact of increased gasoline prices, and you will then place them in your keep the ship steady inflation framework. We will compare notes and we'll see if this produces an intelligent strategy. Here are my criteria. Here are the things that I want you to track uh, as we uh, determine the effect of inflation and gasoline affecting your budget. Number one, what were the the total year's gas expenditures in 2021? Number two, What are you projecting for gas expenditures for 2022? Number three, 
for both of them, what is the percent of disposable income that they constitute? And an estimate is fine because you don't have this written down on a card. And we can use national averages. Number four, is there any wiggle room or unallocated amount in your disposable income that can absorb this increase? Number five, are there possible offsetting savings that can be used? Number six, are there sources of additional funds? What might they be to pay for the gas? Six, what is the value of fewer trips? Seven, what is the value of continuing to spend the same amount on gas? What is the value of the alternative and any alternative solution? I will fill out this matrix cheat sheet and I will have it ready for the next podcast. And if you are inclined to do so, please do it and we'll review it together. I hope this has been helpful to you and I look forward to podcast three.